You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. James chapter 2. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there comes in a poor man, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who was wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or you sit down by my footstool. Have you not made a distinctions among yourselves? And become judges with evil motives. Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. It is not the rich, is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme that fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit, adul- do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit murder, but you do commit, excuse me, if you do not commit adultery, but if you do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or a sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith of its own faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Shall we pray? Father, there's... Nothing you left undone to lift up your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, before us so that we might be given the grace and the faith to turn from our sin and to trust Christ for salvation. That is a holy work of yours, and we contributed nothing. And the song that was just sung about amazing grace, it is a work of amazing grace that has done this and nothing else. And so this morning as we look at your word and we see how works has a place in that, let us be careful 
to attend to everything you have said so that we might not deviate one whit from your truth. May your Holy Spirit confirm in our lives and in our hearts what you are doing in this body day by day. And we'll thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So I originally thought about type, titling this message, um, Saved by Works. And I thought that would raise some eyebrows. So I didn't. But I wanted to. <laughs> um, those of you who have been coming to my Sunday school class know that I don't for one billionth of a nanosecond, I guess we could work that out mathematically, that's pretty short, believe that anything I have done has secured or keeps my salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is all a work of Him. But as, as we've been studying through the book of, of Galatians, we came upon this verse that James said uh, in, in verse 24, where he says, You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And we dug into that a bit, and it just, it kind it, it was remarkable because it just bugged me as I was reading and thinking over the last months, uh, the scripture. Uh, bugged me not in a bad way, in a good way. Um, and so I, I want to say at the outset, just in case there's any inferences, that I'm not, this message is not a message to berate Kootenai Church. It's a message that Kootenai Church is living. And, uh, um, I'm not going to teach you anything new. And yes, I would rather be listening to Jim too, but he'll be back next week. I'm not going to teach you anything new, but I think I'm going to be, if, if it blesses you the way it blessed me, just revisiting what God has done, what God has given to us, what He does for us every day without any possible obligation on His part. It's a remarkable thing. And if we can, if we can think about that and go away from here this morning blessing His name because He chose me. I wouldn't have chose me. I'd have used my very large thumb and, and done something that should have been done. But he did. So, to launch into the message, what is it about celebrity that attracts us so much? Why is it that so many seem to need to latch on to the rocket of somebody who has been propelled into fame, as we see especially in the middle of this chapter? Um, and why is it that when we do that, when we latch on to that rocket, we will find ourselves neglecting the Word. We will neglect the doing of the Word because people will become more important to us than our Savior. In James chapter 2, there's a culmination in which James adverts that we are saved by works. He states that. What does he mean by this? And how is this related in some ways to favoritism? Now, I know that we generally take six months to get through four verses. And, and, and I, that's one of the reasons I felt so at home here. It took us, in a Bible study I taught years ago, it took us three years to get through Genesis. That's a good thing it didn't take God that long to get through it. We'd still be waiting on creation. But there's, there's true blessing and, and teaching and, and benefit from spending long periods of time working your way through every single word in Scripture. And that's good. But today, I'm going to try, I'm going to do something that I'm not really used to doing, and that means I'm going to go clear through an entire chapter. Which, if I pass out while I'm up here, Thomas knows what to do wherever he's at. But, um, so we're going to get through, uh, James. I'm going to, uh, try to work it in such a way that when we get to 24 in the last part of the chapter, we begin to see, uh, if, if we haven't already, or we remind ourselves 
of what an awesome God it is that not only saves us, but gives us and finishes in us the works that He intended for us to do from time before, time before ever. So, I want you, again, I want to repeat, I don't believe that my salvation is secured by a work, nor is it kept by a work. Uh, but I do believe, and I do suspect that you all believe as well, that an actionless faith is akin to no faith at all. A carpenter with a hammer in his hands that never drives a nail will have no houses to sell. Ooh, that sounded like a proverb. That in a nutshell essentially is what James is teaching, not the carpenter thing, the faith without action. That's essentially what he's teaching in, in James in chapter 2. So before we begin, you thought we were begun, but before we begin, there's a couple of things I want to talk about. It is indeed amazing what people can believe. Jim's going through the heresies in the first 500 years of the church, and nothing is new under the sun. We've just repackaged them, but it's amazing what if you say something to somebody enough times, what they will believe. And uh, over the centuries, um, when we deviate from the clear meaning of Scripture, we can find ourselves believing all sorts of strange things. I was... He, he, they all, all kinds of isms. I wrote some of them down this morning. There's, there's Gnosticism, Anarchianism, Adoptionism, Modalism, Arianism, Apollinarianism, Nestorianism. And if we think that the modernisms are any different, we're fooled. The modernisms are just as much a deviation from the clear teaching of the Word of God. Granted, and great though it is that we don't find ourselves in those here by God's grace, because but for the grace of God, there could go any of us. So, two of the ideas that have sprung up and seem to plague the church throughout the history, throughout the ages is the false idea that I somehow secure my salvation by my works. I call that Frank Sinatra theology. I did it my way. I'm not going to sing it. The other is that, and I have actually seen this as well, um, the opposite is that once I'm saved, I can do whatever I want or nothing at all. And I call this Grace-driven sinning. <laughs> Is that a, an oxymoron? Kind of. Both are equally false and both are equally pernicious. Now, while it's going to be impossible to deal completely with both of these this morning, I'm not going to try to deal completely with either one of them. I do believe that we can, we can come away with an understanding of the, the idea that a simple balanced view that what we are saved by grace through faith and that salvation coupled with a growing faith, a continued growing faith, produces good works and a growing desire to do the things that please our Lord. So the key to chapter 2, as you might have guessed, would be to understand at least basically what James was saying in chapter 1. Chapter 1 involves how we deal with trials and temptations. And it, uh, a genuine believer will deal with them in a way that is markedly different from the world. He will persevere. He will believe the promises that God has made. And he will deal with the temptations that, that come into his life in a biblical manner. And he will recognize also, all along the way, that everything that comes into his life comes down from the Father's lights. It's, it's gifts from the heaven, from, from God's throne. But slowly but surely, so slowly but surely, this creates a resilient, active Christian who loves the Lord and delights in doing His will and in serving Him. If there are four verses in chapter 1 that encapsulate the premise in chapter 2, they would be verses 22 through 25 in James chapter 1. 
So let's just take a quick look at those. James chapter 1, verses 23 through 25. And if someone ever tells you that they think they've discovered what encapsulates all of a a next chapter, assume that they're wrong and and read the entire chapter for yourself. But this does cover it pretty well. Um, But prove yourselves... Let me just make sure I've got the right ones here. 23 through 25. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man shall be blessed in what he does. I can relate to looking in the mirror and walking away and forgetting what you look like. I don't like looking at myself in the mirror. Some old guy took over my body. And uh, so I just make sure that there's no spinach in my teeth and that both eyes are open and I still have two ears and then I walk away. That's all I really do. And, and so in James, he's referring to this type of idea that Something's held up to you. Something is, something's wrong. Something's trying to apprise you of something. And I walk away and I ignore it. He finishes up chapter 2 reminding us that we're going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. I just jumped to, I just jumped to page 3. Any of you other guys ever done that? So, we're going to rewind that. So, James chapter 1, verses 23 through 25. We just read those. With that as a front door, let's walk through chapter 2 with a special emphasis on verse 24 when we get to it. In 1-7, through James sets the stage to demonstrate what true faith is and how it operates. He uses a common mishap that occurred in those churches, in the churches of that day, and frankly still occurs today. Uh, Partiality to those with money and a name. James 2, 1-4. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes into your assembly, with, uh, and there also comes into a poor man with dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you, sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made a distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? These are symptoms of a false faith or a no faith. True faith treats everyone the same in the Lord. Galatians 3.28 says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And in Galatians 5, 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. And then in Colossians chapter 3, verse 11. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, freeman, but Christ is all and in all. In fact, true faith seeks the down and out. True faith looks for the ones with needs. True faith specializes in bringing hope to the ones without hope. Do you know people in your life that don't have much hope? True faith brings hope to those people. It caters to those to whom no one else caters in the right way. If you ever want to see someone who has great faith, look among the downtrodden and the no-names and see who is ministering there, doing it without calling attention to themselves. And those folks who are famous and have the names and have the money, James says that they're more likely to drag you into court anyway. And in fact, he uses this as a springboard to remind us of the same things that Paul reminds us of, us that, that, that doing this is a sin. And if you fail at this point, you are guilty of breaking the whole law, James says. 
Those who are lawbreakers are not children of God. They are not the precious elect that the Father has given to the Son. James reminds us that we don't get to pick and choose the things that we want to do that God has given us to do. And so in verses, that's verses 1 through 7. I told you we were going to hurry through this. In verses 8 through 13, James brings the law into the situation to demonstrate two things, or maybe more, but at least two things that I'm going to talk about. The law condemns partiality. And secondly, it is impossible to achieve perfect law keeping. The law condemns partiality, and it's impossible to achieve perfect law keeping. He says this, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. James chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. He will finish up chapter 2 reminding us that we are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. He, but, but you say, I thought my judgment was dismissed because of my faith in Christ. And that's true. My judgment has been dismissed. But James is teaching us that the very faith that we had, that God used to bring us to salvation, will be manifested in good works. It will manifest itself in good works. He reminds us, he reminds us here that hell awaits those who have not been merciful. James 2, 12 and 13. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. All the way through this letter, James pounds home the idea that the one who is saved will want to be and will be like the one who saved him. Now, can we ever be perfectly like Christ? Of course not. But is it your goal? One man said, it's better to shoot for the moon and make it to the street lamp than have no goal at all. Shoot for the moon. He will be impartial. This man will be. This woman will be. He will be compassionate. He will be merciful day by day, step by step, grace to grace. One who has real, fair, real faith will grow in the character that God instills in him or her. And one of those characteristics is mercy. It seems here that James is, is telling us that people who tend to show partiality are merciless. I didn't take the time to develop that as well as I should have maybe. But it's been my observation that people who are name droppers and who are, who are more interested in fame and fortune generally are not kind to people under them. Uh, under them in their view. So, what we are to do is what the Father does. The Father shows mercy, and so will His fathers, His followers. Verses 14 through 26, James demonstrates the true faith which springs from salvation by faith. And that alone is what secures our salvation. Faith, grace. And it results in the kinds of works who, pr- who prove, which prove, that the faith, of, that the faith of one who supposedly has it is genuinely saved. He adduces these truths both from experience and from scripture, especially the story of Abraham. And that's what he uses especially in this. And this section starts in verse 14 with James referencing someone who claims they have faith, but it's not accompanied by any action. What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? Of A faith that wishes someone well but does them no good is not a true faith. There's no way for us to see faith. Is there? Can you look in someone's ear? Can you take an EFG, an electrophathogram? There's no empirical way, physically, to observe someone's body who's trusted Christ and to say, 
oh yeah, that little thing up there, that's, yeah, you're safe. There's just no way. We don't, that's not how it works. You can't look in their ear. No mark appears upon their body. No, the only way we can see faith is by actions. So James sets up a little dialogue here. Now I'm going to take literary, I am taking some literary license with this. But this is, this is directly out of the text, but it is not exactly what the text says. James says, so, you say you have faith. How can I see it? I don't say anything, but you see my deeds. And that shows that I have faith. You believe there is one God? Excellent. Excellent. You do understand, however, that the demons believe. And they take your faith one step further. They shudder. Did you know the demons are orthodox? They believe there is one God. They believe in God. But they take it one step further and they shudder. How does that, how does that faith help them? What are their actions? What do they do? Their deeds are what destroy them. Actually, their lack of faith. I won't get into demonology, but that's what destroys them. So your faith, my friend, James is saying to this person, is one step below that of demons. I don't see you shuddering. I can tell by their actions that their faith is dead. In order for me to see your faith, sir, ma'am, I need to see action, James is saying in that section. Abraham's faith, which God used to give him salvation, produced the kind of belief that would allow him to even consider killing his son. I've read various and sundry uh, uh, commentaries on that. Maybe he thought God would raise him from the dead. To me, it doesn't matter. Abraham believed. He knew God was up to the task. Whatever it was, he believed. And the Bible says it was accounted to him for righteousness. Uh, He knew God would work it out. The offering of his son was an outworking of the saving faith that he had obtained simply by believing in Genesis chapter 20, in uh, verse 23. The works that he did, now remember this, the works that he did after offering Isaac, the, excuse me, the work that he did offering Isaac operated in concert with his true faith, his saving faith, so that his salvation was proven to be a true one. Don't forget, Abraham believed and was counted righteous for our purposes In Genesis chapter 15. At least 30 years later in Genesis chapter 22, he obeyed God and offered Isaac. Let's not forget that passage of time. So was he not saved until he offered Isaac? Not at all. But a life of obedience from the day he was transformed by the saving power and the saving grace of God characterized him all the way to the time when God He developed step by step, faith by faith, grace by grace, recognizing that God performs in our lives what is necessary. And when it came time for him to offer Isaac, I'd like to say he didn't even hesitate. I don't know that. But I'm guessing that it was hard but easy, if you will, because he served a God that he knew would perform, would do what was necessary. So, this was one act in a long life of obedience, 15 chapters worth for our purposes, that culminated uh, in an offering that we see written about in Genesis. Obedience like this was produced by a living faith. So there are markers all through the book of James that give a scriptural reference what, what would be considered a living faith. Now he's writing to people who apparently were not active in their faith. Paul dealt with people who thought that you could be saved by working. James was by, by, uh, by your own works. James was dealing apparently with people who thought that I don't have to, I don't have to do anything. 
God saves me and I can just stand around. I remember dealing with a young man once who, um, this was years ago and I was working at a mill that used to be, everybody, anybody remember Aerotie Mill? Used to be, I don't know where I am right now, but somewhere over there in Kootenai, it was like 9,000 years ago. And, uh, we were talking, I was, we were talking about scripture and, and, uh, he was doing some things that I won't detail them, it's not important, that he knew were wrong. And I said, how can, how, how can you do that? He said, I know God will forgive me. That's a false theology. That is a false theology. That's a false faith. So, so James, I'm, I'm kind of a list guy. Not that you have to keep this list and you have to have this one on your refrigerator, but I like lists. I like, I like organization. My wife would disagree with that. If you looked at my desk, you would too. But I like certain kinds of organization. And so all the way through, um, the book of James, Jim, James, Jim. <laughs> Talk about a name dropper. James, James gives us references to what it is, what a Christian will look like, what a believer will look like. What is it that, that he will do? What kinds of things will happen? And it's, it's, if you will, it's a wondrous set of commands that are, as Paul said in Titus chapter 2 verse 12, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Is it, has it ever been more important for us to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in some present age? What an age we live in. There's an old Chinese proverb, I wish for you that you would live in, in interesting times. Maybe it's a curse. We live in interesting times, don't we? Very interesting. In some cases, uh, for churches, and let, me, let me step aside from the message. Yeah, I have time. Um, one of the remarkable things that I've seen here at Grace, <laughs> that's the church I went to before, at Kootenai, it was a good church too. One of the remarkable scenes, things I've seen here because of grace at Kootenai is people who are unafraid to ask questions. Leadership that tackles the difficult situations and puts together a plan of action and a body that cares for one another. And, and when we get to the end of this message, we will get to the end of this message, there's three verses that I believe characterize what's going on in this church. And it's what God, in His great and gracious glory, does in this world to bring glory to himself. And uh, it's, it's a delight to be a small part of it. But here, here's the list, if you will, that I, I kind of culled from the book of James. What does a faith-based Christian look like? What does someone who is, who is growing day by day after being saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, what does he look like? Verses chapter 1-3, he perseveres in trial. Any of you have any trials in your life? It's a piece of cake, right? Pecan pie. Your life is... What's my favorite? You, have, you persevere. Verse 5 in chapter 1, they seek God. Verses 9 and 10, they're grateful for their station in life, whatever it is. Grateful for it. Verse 12, again, perseverance under trial. You read through the scriptures and you, you begin to think, maybe this is one of the single most important um, staples of the Christian life. Perseverance under trial. Number Verse 19, a quiet listener that is slow to anger. I'm not there, but I'm learning, watching my, my precious wife, how she deals with situations and is able to maintain her composure and not get angry and listen and hear the other person's concerns. Someone who's submissive to the Word of God, verses 21 and 22. And here's a good one, an easy one. This is an easy one. Verse 26, someone who controls his tongue. Verse 27, they look after orphans 
and widows, and they stay unpolluted from the world. Verse, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, they don't show favoritism. Verses, um, verse 13, they're merciful. Mercy is needed in this world, especially among ourselves. Verse 15 and 16, they take care of the needs of others who are destitute. Verse 21, 22, they are obedient in the most difficult of situations. Verse 3, chapter 3, verse 1, they, they, they are careful and circumspect in the decision to be involved in teaching, teaching other believers. Uh, chapter 3, verse 13, verse 12, 3 through 12. Recognition of the great evil the tongue is capable of and striving to control it and make it glorify God. That's what faith-driven workers of God do. Humility and meekness, even if very wise, no, maybe especially so. Chapter 3, verse 13. Verse 18, they're peacemakers. They are committed to making peace. Um, verse eight, four, verse, chapter 4, verse 7. One who draws close to God and resists the devil. Verse 10 in chapter 4. One who seeks, who seeks humility in their lives. Chapter 4, verse 11, one who does not speak evil of his brethren, of his friends, of his, his Christian brothers and sisters. Verse 15, one who acknowledges the control and direction of God in their lives. Verse 17, one who when he knows, she knows, God wants them to do some good thing, they do it. They get it done. One who patiently awaits the coming of the Lord but is not inactive in that waiting, looking at the sky in anticipation. You'll see meteors. You'll see jetliners. Get busy. One who does not complain about his brothers and sisters, but rather suffers affliction using the prophets as an example. That was an interesting one. Chapter 5, verse 9. Verse 12 in chapter 5. One who is good for his word. Remember the day when a handshake was all that was needed and you knew that someone would perform if you shook their hand, it was going to happen? Now we need contracts with 30,000 clauses in them. And I've been told a trillion times not to exaggerate. I'm working on it. Verse 13. One who prays in difficulty but knows how to show joy in good circumstances is not a dower. And that's what I struggle with. I, I, I can see, some people see the cup half full. Some people see it half empty. I just know somebody's going to have to wash that sucker. And it's probably going to be me. So, and then verse six, chapter 5, verse 16 one who has a relationship with the others in his church. And I had this before I saw what developed with something Madison. Uh, well, at any rate, you'd probably know who I'm talking about. That, that weird website. I had this. This was brought to my attention before I saw that develop. One who has a relationship with others in the church such that they can confess their faults to one another and be prayed for. And then I, so I put down, isn't this relevant in light of recent events? And it's only fitting in a book dedicated to setting right the relationship between faith and works that the author under the inspiration of Holy Spirit would, would give us definition. A life of faith is a life of works. And it's clear from James' writings that the life of, the life he's talking about, the life of works, is a life of loving obedience to the one who gave us life. Whether it's jumping in front of a bullet or making sure someone needy has a coat. Those are the things and, and when we opt for the really showy and the really glowing, we often miss the really needy. 
So I had a list of what are your works? Street preach. You play a special. You encourage someone who's discouraged. You painted a room for someone. You took a meal to someone in need. You handed out bulletins. You provided clothing for someone who needed it. Working in a nursery. You held your tongue. You worked in government. (laughs) You taught Sunday school. You faithfully gave eight hours of work for eight hours of pay. But now, it's not about lists, is it? God is working in your heart every day, every hour, every minute, every second, changing you, molding you, teaching you, driving you to do the things that bring glory to Him. And so we say, we say this, we say yes, we do see that our works save us. Just like James said it, brothers and sisters, when you come to trials, you know that this testing of your faith will work perseverance. You will become mature and complete. You will ask and you will receive. You will study and God will deliver you from false ideas. You will not say God is tempting you. You will recognize that the temptation comes from within your own evil desire, but you will turn from that evil desire and see that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. You will become quicker to listen and slower to speak, slower to make sure everybody knows your opinion. I knew a fellow, I think I've told you this before, who had a t-shirt that said, everybody is entitled to my opinion. And he was like that. It wasn't me, but I was like that too. You will be, you will get rid of the moral filth that characterized your former life and you will humbly accept the word that is planted in you. You will find yourself more and more every day becoming a doer of the word and not just a hearer of the word. You will behold yourself in a mirror and you'll see the flaws. And you will submit those flaws to the work of God, whether it's right there directly or going to a brother or sister and asking for counsel on how to do, how to deal with something. You will visit the fatherless and the widows. You will see everyone the same way that God sees them. Sinners in need of a Savior, just as you were, just as I was. You will see that the ground is in fact level. I know it's an old cliche, but it really brings things home. It's level at the foot of the cross. Actually, for those that are taller, there's holes there for them to stand in. So that they stay level. You will not despise the poor. You will not be partial to those that have fame or money. You will recognize that you cannot keep the whole law and your trust will be in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You will recognize the law of liberty as your judge and it will be a blessing and it will be a blessing to you and you will be merciful. And if a brother or sister is naked or destitute or in need of something, you will bless them and it will be more of a blessing to you than it is to them. You will be one of those who say, yes, I hear about your faith. Here is what God is doing in my life. And you know what? Even that doing is God Himself outworking the faith that He gave to me. He did that too. It's a remarkable thing and it's, it can be attributed only to God. May He get the glory. And so, and we'll close with this, works are a result of a true faith and make that faith perfect so that we see that by works a man is justified not by faith only because a true faith can only result in works that glorify God. And so we saw in Hebrews chapter 11, and that's where my marker just fell out of, but it's just before here, so it should be pretty easy to find. I had, oh, on the side, the words that kids are listening for. Do you know how many you're going to do before this? How many times you're Okay, good, because I had no how many times, no idea how many times. I'm just going to say whatever word is being chosen today. Okay, I like it. 
And so as we see in Hebrews 11, faith helps us understand that the worlds were prepared by the Word of God and believe it and act on it. Faith made Abel offer a sacrifice to God. Faith caused Noah to obey and build an ark and deliver the human race from annihilation by God's command. Faith caused Abraham to obey and leave his home and go to a place that he had no idea of. And, and you can read, I stopped at verse 10 in the, for the Bible reading just because I stopped at verse 10. The rest of that book details remarkable ideals that faith produces works in people's lives. And so here's what I see here at Kootenai. I see God working in our lives, in your lives, producing the works that only an obedient true faith and a salvation that was secured by the Son giving, by the Father giving to the Son an elect that He loved for the Son to love. You've been given to Him. And verse 2 of 2 Corinthians says, You are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Do you think those people were reading that letter, those people, by looking in their ears or doing an electrofaithgram? No. They saw the works that the Corinthians were doing. In Romans 1.8, first, Paul says, I thank my God through Christ Jesus for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the entire county. The whole world here, but we'll keep it homey. And then chapter, first Thessalonians 1.8, for the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Sandpoint and Clark Fork, but also in Kootenai, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. And then the last verse would be 1 Thessalonians 1.9. For they themselves report about us, report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned from God. You turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. And who was it done by? It wasn't done by any single person in Kootenai Community Church. It was done by the Father. It was done by the Son. It was done by the Holy Spirit working in concert to bring you to salvation and to bless this community. May it ever be so with the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. May it be that it is our good works that produce the hatred that the world that Jim has talked about in his messages that the world has for us. May it not be that our our disobedience would be what they look at and find useful to denigrate our God. May it be only that we loved one another, we trusted the Father, to bring into this community a blessing through us so that He is glorified and He is spoken properly of by about our words as well as our deeds. Yes, we are saved by works. You know what I mean. I can picture James, uh, and here's how I'm picturing it. This is for me. Yeah, you're saved by works. Paul, isn't that right? We have the whole Scripture. We have all of the verses. We have everything we need to live lives that are godly in Christ Jesus. And I'm grateful that God is producing that kind of a work here. May He ever do so. And may it be that, as I said earlier, that people recognize the work that God has done and give glory to Him. And may it ever be that if any denigration, if any hate comes, it is because of what is being done that is godly and that is good. Because Jesus promised in John chapter 16 and 17 that we will be hated. Let that hatred be directed towards those things that we've done. Called of God to do as God has directed. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that you left nothing to chance. That so many people have a view of 
a kindly father who can't control certain things, who doesn't know what's going on sometimes. But no, you are the omnipotent, all-seeing, perfect God of the universe. You've orchestrated everything. Let us walk within that orchestration uh, as we study Scripture and hear from you there, knowing that you want us to be your message to the world, an outworking in a time when the world needs it so much. They need the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us be the bearers of his image by your grace in the same way that you saved us so that our works will be clearly attributed to you. We'll ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.